literally within about three or four minutes, my day's work has been done. And then I thought, all I've got to do now is just tart that drawing up a little bit, make it presentable, and, I, and I've done it. But then I've had other days where you've got a deadline at seven o'clock, and I, at six o'clock, I've been reading since six o'clock in the morning, and thinking, look, an idea is going to occur. <laughs> there is one in there somewhere. And the more you think about how to extract that bloody idea, you know there's one in there somewhere, but the more you concentrate on that business of, of dragging that idea out of your own head, the more elusive the idea becomes. Um, and sometimes, I mean, looking at this book, it's very clear that some of your, your gags are verbal as well mm -hmm. as visual. So sometimes do you get the caption yep. first they and both then you illustrate? Simultaneously, right. usually. Um, but I always work on captions. Mm. The, the, less, the less words that you use, the more effectively you get your message across. And rhythm has something to do with it too. I'm, I'm, a, I'm word obsessed. Every single day I do the... Um, the cryptic crossword, or I do a cryptic crossword every day, and it's an addiction like anything else. You see, I'm terribly easily addicted to things, and um, I, I still remember uh, I painted a portrait of a man in 1982, brilliant, brilliant man he was, and while I was doing his portrait, he was just sitting there, and I'd say, Ernest, you go. Work as soon as he knew that I wasn't looking at him, <laughs> he was doing a cryptic crossword. And I said, I've never understood those cryptic crosswords, they're just impossible and impenetrable to me. And I said, But I'd really like to. And he said, Oh, he was coming back a week later for another sitting, and he wrote down G S G E in capital letters. Then he wrote 9 4. Two words, nine and four. And he said, work out what the answer is to that by the time I see you next week. And then you'll have, been able, you'll have made a start on cryptic crosswords. And as I said, I've got a rather addictive or obsessive, I don't even, it doesn't worry me, you know. I am obsessive and, I'm, uh, and I just think it's a terrific thing. And, um, and so I, uh, I could not stop looking at it. And a couple of days before he came back for the next sitting, I was thinking, now, there's only one thing that gives me a clue here, and that's four. Four letters, G, S, G, and E. And the second word has got four letters. Then I realised, of course, that those, there was only one word I could make out of those four letters. It was eggs. And scrambled has nine. And... Um, and uh, and so when he, he turned up, I said, is it scrambled eggs? He said, you're away now. You're away. And, uh, and, and I was. And, yeah, and I, and I still remember, too, the first time that I ever finished a cryptic crossword. Um, it got to about 2 o'clock in the morning. I lived in Manly at the time. And I had one clue. And I had every second letter in it. And the clue was... U, Y-O-U, comma, Eve, question mark. And it was two words of six letters each. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, and I had every second letter, and I gave up and went to bed. And then at about four o'clock in the morning, I woke up. Oh, I've got it. And because um, it's like cartoons, um, something, some part of the brain is dealing with this mm -hmm. thing if it's mm -hmm. bugging you, mm -hmm. and you don't know where it is. It's somewhere in the back of your head. And um, if you just leave it to sort of percolate away, it'll, it'll eventually just come popping out. And I did it about four o'clock in the morning. And I went out and I wrote it in. And of course it was you, Eve, second person. Bloody obvious, you know, but, um, <laughs> but it was such a triumph. I've never forgotten it. That was 1982, you, see? You, Brain damage and everything, I can still remember that. <laughs> you talk about that sort of percolating there, and one of the, the rituals that a lot of writers have is going for a walk, and yeah. if you're having a problem with your work, you leave it alone, you go for a walk, and often the, the solution presents itself through the mechanical act of walking, it seems to trigger something in the brain. Did you have things that you could use as prompts that would sort of... I still do. Like what? I used to um, uh, go on a kayak, because uh -huh. I live at, on next to Hardy's Bay, which was on fire yesterday, just quietly, mm -hmm. but mercifully my house wasn't. And, um, and it's, yeah, that's, that's what I do. I go in the kayak, and deliberately not think about the cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And I go out, and that's one of, if you've got to do exercise, which is a, a, a chore, but if you've got to do it, you might as well go kayaking, because to me it's just like plunging myself into a lot of light and colour, mm -hmm. and it's just exquisite. And, and it's, it's good exercise. And... Um, and you are actually using a different part of the brain. The paddling exercise is actually very good for your sort of neuronal pathways, whether you've had a bump on the head or not. Well, I think it's just, it's just, a, it's, it's as close as I come to meditation. Because mm -hmm. I don't think about anything. I just look at the colours and go, how good is this? I see, uh, you know, sea eagles diving in and one, only a few weeks ago, about 20 or 30 feet from where I was, bang, you know. When in and he came up with a big fish and flew straight over my head and I thought, well, that would never have happened to me if I hadn't been out here right now. And it's just visually, ex it's exquisite and it, everything else is out of your mind. You go back and uh, I always jump in the shower and then you sit down and suddenly that idea is there. Yeah. Just going back to the, the portrait session where the um, cryptic crossword was first kind of mm. presented to you, I've always wondered whether there's a kind of onerous side to um, painting someone's portrait in terms of expectations of conversation. Is it, is it a burden to have to talk to the sitter while they're there, or, or does that...? It is for the sitter in my case. <laughs> it is. But seriously, I'm serious, I'm serious. I, because um, I did a portrait of Malcolm Turnbull once, and Malcolm uh, told me afterwards, and it came as a real surprise to me, that it was, he told me that it was the only experience that he'd ever had as a very experienced lawyer of being cross-examined. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realise I was that intrusive, but I am apparently. And, um, but you don't mind having to chat? I don't mind it, but it, the, the best solution is to have someone else chatting. Mm -hmm. Someone else chatting. 
to the person that you're doing the painting of. Because then you don't... I mean, people aren't like vases of flowers, you know, they, they, they don't stay still and they don't cooperate. They tend to you know, <laughs> nod off. And, um, but if you've got somebody talking to the person that you're painting, then they are a bit like a vase of flowers, you know? And you're not thinking all the time about the conversation. But part of the process of portraiture is getting to know the person that you're painting. Because to do a very superficial likeness of someone is extremely easy. We could all, you know, set up shop in Martin Place, you know, 20 bucks a throw. <laughs> that only took me two minutes. And, um, but to actually get a portrait a likeness, because I'm a realist. Actually, that's another thing we could talk about. Mm. It's only one of those things that you realise with time. But um, uh, if you get uh, an image of a person, you think about it. If you're working on a painting of a person's face, you know, you might think, I, want, I, I don't want this eye to just look like any old eye. It's got to look exactly like that eye but it's the way that eye looks to me, mm. right? That's why you can put 10 different portrait painters in the same room and they can all do a portrait of the same person and they all look different. You'll recognise the portrait in every one of them, but everyone sees somebody differently. Mm. And um, you want it to be that eye, that eyebrow, you know, very specifically, do I, you know, do I attack it with a really thick brush? Do I put it on with my thumb? Um, or do I use a really fine brush? Or how do I treat it? And so there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little technical decisions that are taking place during the course of that painting. And then suddenly you'll go, oh shit, that's the person. But what, what, what You have to know the person in order to recognise What difference does it make whether you like the person or not? You always do. Do you? Yeah. Um, funnily enough, yeah, I've, I've, I've had I've a couple of experiences of people who are really, really obnoxious, you know, and difficult to paint, difficult to have in the studio, but I've thought, I mean, I won't name any names, but this bloke and his wife, they, they uh, commissioned me to paint their portraits. And they were both unbelievably difficult and obnoxious, you know. In what way obnoxious? Give us an idea or a hint of the sort uh, of obnoxiousness. Um, she said to me, uh, after, when I was sort of, after, during the first sitting, working for about five minutes, and she gets up, comes over, sees, sees wrinkles. <laughs> Why are you painting sees wrinkles? I said, well, yeah, I only just started <laughs> the end of the sitting. These wrinkles, you are making me look old. I said, no, I'm not. I'm making you look the age you are. She said, you, you are a portrait painter. It is your job to make me look young and beautiful. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong... Came to the wrong person. <laughs> I said, if, I said if, you, if you wanted a beautician, you should have gone to someone else. And uh, she didn't like me, and... Um, and she was just unbelievable. I said, well, if, while we're at it, I said, you might as well be specific. How old would you like to be? <laughs> and she said, 42. <laughs> I thought, I don't know what you looked like when you were 42. But, um, and when I finished those two paintings, 
I hand-delivered them mm. to this bloke's place. He lived in Melbourne. And, um, and he wasn't even there when I took them around. And the next day he rang me up and abused me. He, told, he said, you have divided my family. <laughs> I said, how did I do that? He said, oh, he said, my son thinks the portraits are wonderful. Everybody else hates them. <laughs> and I said, oh, what about you? And he said, I hate them. I said, oh, well, at least you're honest. He said, you've made, you've made, um, uh, he said, you've made my wife look fat and you've made me look far too serious. And I said, well, you should laugh more and she should lose weight. <laughs> what does he expect? But, but, but even then, like, uh, it was a challenge, you know, and I, 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 I still quite enjoyed doing it because I just thought, this bloke's a real prick, really, you know. I a person who's really like that and make it... Uh, so it comes across. Other people look at it and go, oh, don't like the look of that <laughs> No, I enjoy it. And most people, almost, almost without exception, probably him and his wife would be the exceptions to the rule, I always end up really liking them. And you develop very close relationships with people that you paint. Mm, mm. You know, you spend a lot of time with them. Because um, I'm interested in the fact that, you know, there's the portrait, portrait side of your career as an artist and then there's the cartooning and, and I think the text in this book is really, really illuminating. It's not just Bill's um, opinions and rants on various subjects, but, but there's a lot of insight into his process and his psychology and approach I'm glad you called it process. Hey? I'm glad you called it process. Oh, did, are you? Okay, I can't well, stand it when people, artists talk about their practice. Oh. Anyway, um, one of the things that comes out in terms of you talking about the um, the cartooning side, is how much of your work is fueled by anger, and I find mm. anger a very interesting kind of creative material. And obviously, it fuels an enormous amount of writing and, and creative work. So, yeah. can you just talk about anger? Are you as angry now as you were when you started? Yeah, um, <laughs> I just get angry about different things. Okay. I think. Um, I think frustrated and infuriated is probably a better way to put it, but. I, I, when I first started to draw cartoons, which is a long time ago, I used to, I was painting at the time, mm. spent all my time in a studio and painting, and I wasn't just painting portraits. By the way, these days I'm painting portraits, again, mm. a lot of them, and I'm painting portraits of birds. My local area, I live on the central coast, and, and my most interesting and colourful neighbours fly. <laughs> but they don't sit still for long. They don't. I have to photograph them. But I just, there's this, there's, sorry, I'm sidetracked here, but if you think about it, you know, um, if you look at seven, a lot of 17th and 18th century portraiture especially, uh, if you analyse the surfaces, you'll find that they're about 70 per cent in, uh, and, and even before that, and not even so much portraiture, but paintings by people like Veronese, figurative paintings. Um, there's one particular painting that's in Vienna that I was, I'm just thinking about. It's beautiful. And, and about 80% of the surface of that work 
is dedicated to beautiful fabrics. Mm-hmm. And they're all very de- they're all very decorative, mm-hmm. and and I'm one of those people who even as a little kid, you know, I remember when I was about four or five, looking and thinking, how come that looks like it's made out of satin, mm-hmm. and yet the piece next to it, you can tell, is not that's made out of silk or something mm-hmm. like that. It's sort of just fascinating. Realist pic- mm-hmm. realist painting is always just so fascinating, and to get those differences of textures and 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 it's decorative, mm. you know. And suddenly I found myself doing these pictures. I used to paint them on the walls of my studio. I had about 36 of them at one stage. Every time I had a spare moment, I'd just go, oh, I'll do, I'll paint a bird sitting on that light switch. And, and, uh, and I finished up painting all these little birds all over the studio. I loved it. <laughs> and I've turned into, so, I've become so anally retentive. I got my, I got my house rebuilt and it's all pristine. And I don't like painting on the walls anymore. <laughs> what a wanker. And um, I've only got a few. I only kept a few of them. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll just start painting them on canvas. And I just love it. Because it's that's decorative. And every one of them, every bloody bird is a unique individual. You know, and they turn up beautifully dressed. <laughs> they're really decorative and they don't object. They don't say, you've made me beak too big. <laughs> hey, 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 my plumage is better than that. No, so, so that's really interesting. And, um, well, that suggests a mellower side that is not the angry young man. No, OK, well, go back to that. So when let's I, just go back to I, the anger. I was, paint, I was painting in a studio and, and I used to listen to uh, Question Time, you know, <laughs> So maybe I have a bit of masochist in me or something, but I used to always listen to Question Time. And this was in the days when Question Time was actually rather interesting. You know, it's not like now, mm. where you couldn't possibly listen to it. Mm. And, um, and, and I remember one day strutting up and down in the studio and punching paint onto a canvas and listening to, a, listening to Question Time. And I got so angry with uh, some, somebody who was blathering on, that I, I, just, I just had this rag, and it was really heavy with, with oil paint and shit, and so I, and I went bang, and I hurled it at the radio, and the radio went flying off the fridge, and went smash against the wall, and bang, on the ground. And you know that awful feeling, that suddenly there's no more noise. It's just silence in that studio. And I went over and I got this thing. <laughs> you know, and that was the end of that radio. And, um, and it wasn't long after that that I decided that I had to do something to earn a living because I had a family, two sons, and I was married. And, and they were suffering for my art, you know, and um, I thought it was a bit unfair. And so I knew I had to make a quid somehow or another. And I had no qualifications in any area whatsoever. And I'd always been fascinated by cartoons. And I thought, maybe I could draw cartoons. And I took a whole stack of cartoons to the Bulletin magazine. And the next week, that used to be published on a Wednesday, and I ran out on the Wednesday, and I opened it up, and there was one of my cartoons. It was published quite big by the Bulletin standards, you know. And I thought, I wonder how much they'll charge me for that. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it'd be like putting in a classified ad. 
And instead, they sent me a check for 40 bucks. I thought, how is this? And that was it. It was like cryptic crosswords. I was addicted and I loved doing it. And I have done ever since. It was a, a way of... It was a way of... of um, doing something that I really enjoyed in order to make a living, but it was just so much more satisfying than smashing radios. Yes. Because you, the, the wonderful thing, we, we all get angry with our p politicians and we'd like to see them dead. <laughs> or we'd actually like to kill them ourselves. But as a cartoonist, you can actually send little messages to them. <laughs> And you know they're going to see them. <laughs> and you know they're going to hate it. It's deeply satisfying. Well, let, let's just talk then about that there's been a, a bit of discussion recently um, generated by comment from people, public intellectuals like Anne Summers and others, particularly feminists, who are concerned about um, the particularly hard time that Julia Gillard has been getting from some cartoonists. Oh, I'm usually included in the number. Well, actually, your name is not... You're not the prime culprit. No, oh, I know, but... Particular... Oh, I know, I'm not the prime culprit. I know who the prime culprit is. But... Yeah, and I just wanted to ask you what you think about that. I think it's complete nonsense. It is in my case, anyway. Um, uh, Ron Tanberg once said, the political cartoonists should be equally unfair to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I am... <laughs> and, and I'm militantly, dedicatedly and determinedly so. And um, I think that whole sexist argument is just utter nonsense. And I'll tell you why. Because, let me just give you an example. <coughs> Mal Colston, now there's a good one. Who could forget Mal Colston? Um, I used to draw Mal Colston as a pig. Not as someone who looked a bit like a pig, but a pig. He had a snout, and he had a little. I used to put a little curly tail, sort of poking out of a little hole in his in his pants, and his gut hung over his over his down to his knees, and he had trotters instead of feet. Right? No one complained. I never ever received a single complaint. Mal Colston didn't get on the air and say, "Oh." That horrible cartoonist makes me look like a pig. And, um, and then when Amanda Vanstone appeared on the scene, I drew Amanda Vanstone so she looked like Amanda Vanstone. That is, a bloody great big fat woman, about 18, 20 stone. And uh, I used to get all these angry letters from people calling me a sexist pig for doing these vile caricatures of Amanda Vanstone. I thought, what makes my drawings of Amanda Vanstone more vile than the ones I do of everybody else? Why should she get special treatment because she's a woman? Who's being sexist here? And clearly it wasn't me, so I didn't give a shit. And, um, and, and in the case of Amanda Vanstone, um, she was one of the very few politicians who would frequently ring up and ask if she could buy the original of a cartoon. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, all, these, all, these, all of these um, militant feminists who were sort of abusing me on her behalf, she was obviously quite oblivious to them. You know, she, didn't, she wasn't aware of that. And she was one of the very few who would ring me personally. She didn't get a staffer to ring me. Um, and she didn't send a message. 
or, you know, get, get a staffer to send me an email or something, she'd ring up. Oh, Amanda Vanstone here, Bill. I love today's cartoon. <laughs> I guess one of the, the incredible knacks or disciplines that you've, you've acquired as a cartoonist is this ability to see the comic in even a tragic episode. Can you just talk about how you convert something awful into something that we're able to laugh about? Unfortunately, um, well, I have that ability to see the funny side of things. Of anything? Pretty much. But there's usually an ironic thing or there's sometimes it's the reactions of people or whatever. Um, I, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a character defect in me or not. I, I certainly don't worry about it. Um, but I usually think things are pretty funny. And, you know, Woody Allen said, um, comedy is tragedy plus time. And, and it's so true. I mean, Jesus, you know, the funniest things that ever happen in your life are things that are anything but funny when they happen. I remember, like, once my brother, he's a lovely bloke, much nicer person than me, and he's five years younger and he went to the Conservatorium of Music High School. Right, and I, I was one of those kids who I probably had a fist fight for every day that I was at school. Oh. It just, and I got caned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And um, my brother went to the Conservatorium of Music, and he has, to this day, he's never been involved in a fist fight. This beggar's belief. And we often talk about how funny it is, you know, that we both lived under the same roof, but we both just led completely different lives. And I was very protective of him. And one day he came in and he was weeping. And, oh, he was in a terrible state. And his face was all swollen. He was all red. <laughs> and he told me that this kid had bashed him up. And I said, oh, Jesus, what happened? And he said that he got off the bus and this kid said, oh, you're that little sissy that goes to the Conservatorium High School, aren't you? Yep, so whack, whack, whack. And um, I said, right, oh, who did this? He told me the name of this kid. And so the next afternoon, I went, I shot through from my local school, you know, one, one period early, and I hid in the bushes of his place. And I knew that, that he, he, did, he only had a mum, he didn't have a dad. And, uh, and so no one in the house was going to see what was going on. And, um, and, as this, and as this kid came around the corner into his own driveway, I came out with a school case with a couple of house bricks in it. Bang! And, um, and I nearly killed this poor kid, you know. And, um, and I gave him such a hiding that a passing motorist a passing motorist took it upon himself to stop, drag me off him, and um, telling this bloke what had happened to him if ever he touched my brother again. Anyway, he was one of two identical twins, and I got the wrong one. <laughs> now, see? Everybody laughed. Because <laughs> it's bloody funny, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't funny then. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I mean. I, I'm glad I chose that example because things are not like that. Was a it was an utter fiasco. 
And I lived in dire fear of uh, retribution because all, all three, there were three of these kids and they all became Hell's Angels members. And, and if ever I went back to my parents' house, I used to see them all and all st standing around in the front yard at this place, you know, with big open fires and things. And, and I used to drive my parents' house. That wasn't funny then. But there's a, there's a difference, Bill, between what happens to an individual and what happens to us collectively. So I'm curious about, for example, would you have done um, a cartoon about something like the Victorian bushfires the next day? No. Because no. people have been ready to laugh the next day. And there well, there's but that's, to laugh it's, about it's, there. Well, there's nothing much to laugh about. And it's, it's also, also, it's probably not... Um, it's not the sort of issue that I'm going to be doing a cartoon about. And I'll tell you what, one of the things I really do not like is the earnest cartoon. <laughs> the, 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 the cartoon with a very important message. <laughs> it's a, you know, or uh, the cartoon that's supposed to bring a tear to the eye. I hate them. Uh -huh. And one of my dearest friends is Warren Brown. Uh -huh. He works for The Telegraph. And he is one of the funniest. He's a naturally funny man. And he is, like, he doesn't agonise over his work the way I do. I've been with Brownie at sort of 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and he'll go, oh, shit, I've got it. He'll go, oh, shit, I've got to go and do a cartoon. <laughs> if I, if I, I start every morning when I'm doing my cartoons, I'm up at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and I get the things in on time, but usually only just... Brownie goes, oh, shit, I've got to go and do a cartoon. Uh, I'll tell you how low he is. He, um, he, I, was, I was at a friend's place one day and we are all having a barbecue. He said, oh, I've got to do tomorrow's cartoon. And I had told him previous to this how... He, this was years ago, and he'd started to... His, they'd started to publish his cartoons in colour Mm -hmm. And just, his colour was so beautiful, I couldn't get over how really exquisite his colour was. And I complimented him on it many times. And he said, oh, thanks, mate, thanks. And um, this particular day, we were at a friend's place, he said, I've got to do my cartoon. He's dashed off, and about 20 minutes later, he's back. And I said, gee, you did that quickly? And I said, well done. Next day I saw it, it was a really good cartoon. And I said, the colour's fantastic. And uh, he said, oh, thanks, man. And I said, tell me how you did that. His girlfriend has won the equivalent of a sort of an Oscar for uh, television graphics. She does the graphics for SBS TV. And he draws them in ink, scans them, sends them to her. She puts the colour on them. <laughs> but every now and again, you know... Uh, Every now and again, Anzac Day or some tragic event, like the anniversary of the Bali bombing, I wouldn't be surprised if he has an earnest cartoon in tomorrow. And every time he does, I send him an abusive message. Because I think that... I don't think it's the, uh, the cartoonist's job to make sort of, you know, deeply emotional statements. And so you're not a fan of Lunig's work? No, I'm not. Mm. I used to be. I, he was one of my heroes. Mm. Um, he was one of the people that I, who wanted me, made me want to become a cartoonist. And I really admire him and I like him very much. But 
I just think he takes himself so bloody seriously. So I guess the, a kind of the, the rider to that sort of thing of, you know, you having a kind of allergic response to earnestness would be the greatest sin, I suppose, uh, in cartooning terms is blandness, isn't it? Physical yeah. blandness yeah. of someone's features, but also presumably blandness of personality. So can you talk yeah. about... Um, political figures that you've done cartoons of. Or the ones being, I don't like. Well, where the blandness is part of the problem and becomes yeah. part of the, the identity that you create for them or that you... Well, the classic example would be Kevin Rudd. Yeah. Um, we don't like... I mean, Mark Latham, he said uh, uh, Canberra is Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> and um, he, he was right. <laughs> And that's why I get annoyed about... Um, I got really annoyed with, with, with Rudd's... the advent of the, of the Rudd um, government because they weren't... Suddenly the people weren't nearly as ugly as they were supposed to be. I like very ugly people to draw, you know. Um, I'm always envious of the English cartoonists because you have a look around the House of Commons. <laughs> what, what is common about those people? Uh, they're very rare. I mean, you, you, there are people in the House of Commons with eyebrows that are that long. You know, and um, they're really freakish-looking people. And, and, like, if you look around at us today, we're a normal bunch of people. If, you, if we were a group of politicians, or if we walked into a room the same, the same number of people, and they were all federal politicians, you'd go, Jesus. <laughs> It's like a freak show, and um, and and then when when uh, Rudd's ministry was announced, and yeah, there were too many people there that were like verging on the glamorous. Tony you know. You know? She's not a real ugly-looking woman. <laughs> Penny Wong, she's not ugly. No. Even Peter Garrett, you know, lovely bloke. Um, too nice a bloke, you know, and um, quite a good-looking bloke. And we don't want that. And um, <laughs> but but bloody Rudd himself. You need something that you can yeah. get get a grip on. And, and I looked at him and he, I thought, he's got, well, there it is. It's like a soccer ball. Yes. His head is a sphere, you know and his little nose, and um, it's not even much of a nose, like a little budgie's, a little budgie's beak. And, uh, and there's just nothing sort of real interesting about his face. And, and you know how Howard had... <laughs> when, when he brought in the GST, I added 10% to his bottom. No one noticed. And... Uh, no one noticed, and, um, and 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 even even Rudd's bottom lip—it's a—it's a bit pouty, mm. but it looks like a pale imitation of of, of uh, John Howard's, mm. and and that's when I discovered that he looked like Tintin, mm. and so I just drew him as Tintin, yes. and worked. What's the little lick of hair that you've given? Well, him? Yeah, but you see him if he's walking in a breeze, up to you. <laughs> Yeah, it works. I mean, it, it, it worked. And, um, yeah, but the blandness is not a, a thing that it's really, that, that you need in them. But it's, it's, that comes with personality too, of course. Mm. People like Stephen Smith, you know, he's... There's one good thing about Stephen Smith. I reckon he is the only man 
who shaves his forehead. He's not, you know, everybody else has receding hairlines. He's got a pro, he's got a proceeding one. It looks like, it looks like every morning he must lather up his whole head and just shave a sort of a hole in it. You know? Because Christ, it's like, if he left it, it it'd finish up look like, looking like Lon Chaney and the Wolfman. And, uh, and yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. But it's, but he's kind of bland looking. He's handsome, man. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps he is. It, handsomeness is another thing that yeah. you don't like. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I think I might have even mentioned in the book, but there was, I once met Ian Chappell. Mm. And, uh, shit, it was funny. I, I was at a TV station going to do an interview and I found myself there amongst all these cricketers and one of them was Ian Chappell and, and he's sitting there chatting away to me and he said, oh, yeah, you're a cartoonist, eh? Yeah. He said, oh, I met a cartoonist once and uh, he said, I'm one of those people that uh, is just really, really hard to draw. <laughs> Red rag to a ball. <laughs> and I said, is that a fact? <laughs> he said, yeah, apparently, apparently some people are hard to draw and others aren't, and I'm one of those people who's really hard to draw. And I said, well, I'll tell you who's hard to draw, Ian. There are two types of people that are really hard to draw. And I said, extremely beautiful young women and extremely handsome young men. Now, why do you reckon this bloke had a problem drawing you? <laughs> and I said, did it occur to you that he just mightn't be very good? <laughs> I mean, I've never heard such bullshit. And I mean, he's a wonderful face to draw. And, and yeah, the, the more exaggerated a person's features are, the more fun they are to draw. But I'll, another thing that's really interesting about people's features, you know, look at Bob Hawke, you know, um, it's a little known fact, but as we grow older, our noses and our ears mm. keep growing. Mm. And um, imagine what Tony Abbott's going to be like at 80. <laughs> <laughs> Just cleaning my ear with this cricket bat. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, and, and so you always make the noses bigger and the ears mm. bigger and everything gets exaggerated. And, and so, in a way, you're making people look a bit older than they are. It's like a glimpse into the future. And Bob Hawke, he used to do this... That process occurred with him so quickly. Like, it was extraordinary. You'd do a, you'd do a really funny drawing of him. It was so exaggerated. People would look at it and just burst out laughing. Two weeks later, it looked like a photographic likeness. <laughs> I painted his portrait, I swear to Christ, his nose and his ears were bigger by the time I finished than they were when I started. Um, the Pinocchio Well, that, that happens to a lot of them. Yes, yes, there's some cartoons of that in here. Um, Bill, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together, but I want to give the audience a chance to ask you some questions. I'm sure that there are questions in the room. So if you've got a question for Bill, now is your chance. Yes, so the gentleman at the back and, and the lady in the... Yeah, we'll come to you next. I'm sure you can project. Yes, the, um, the person just mentioned Pop, of course, was, was great um, uh, fodder for cartoonists and 
perhaps you were you were commencing at that time. I don't know, Bill. That's right. Well, no, the very first cartoons that I did, he was prime minister, and his protagonist with the uh, half shaven uh, uh, Keating obviously got, got got an awful lot of stick from cartoonists with the pointed features, the longer face, the lo the nose, very very pointed. Yeah. Was it fair? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, it's not a question of fairness. True. Um, I don't think there's any need to feel compelled to be fair to any of these people. Um, you're trying to make a very a point, and you're trying to be. It's it's no there's no point in in doing the flattering cartoon. You know. Um, People like to pigeonhole cartoons, and a lot of cartoonists, I think, allow themselves to be, because you'll have certain cartoonists and you can just tell that they're trying to push a certain political, um, an ideolo ideological point of view. I don't. I, I, I tend to agree with um, H.L. Mencken. Mencken once said, um, for any thinking person, all governments, are equally um, abhorrent. It doesn't matter what, whether they're allegedly left-wing, right-wing, as we like to call them in Australia, even though those definitions keep changing all the time. Um, most thinking people will find any government insufferable if they think for hard enough and long enough. And so uh, it's not unusual, for example, if you, you can spend your whole time hammering away, as I did at the the, the Howard government, and the very next day after he's gone, the person who's taken over becomes your next target. And people say, what a bastard you are. You hammered away at John Howard all those years and now you're having a go at Kevin Rudd. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Flattering drawings of Kevin Rudd? Little cartoons that say, gee, you're doing a terrific job. I mean, it's just absurd. It's a critical position that you take. This lady here. Yes. How was your experience of painting the property you received? You like the portraits? Oh, thank you. Yeah. We were really good friends, um, me and Bob Hughes, and um, unfortunately, for some reason, he just stopped having any contact with me a few years ago, and I was very upset about it. And. Um, and then subsequently I spoke to a few other people who said that it's, it was his sort of modus operandi. He suddenly just stopped. And uh, 12 months after we, he'd stopped communicating with me, I actually sent him a message and said, did I do something or say something that offended you? Because I'd really like to know why you suddenly ceased communication with me. He never answered, so I thought, oh, well. But... Um, That's clear after the portrait. How did he react? He didn't. No, but that was okay, because um, I didn't really want him to give me a critique of the portrait. He liked it. I mean, he liked it. He was really satisfied with it, but we didn't sit down and, and go through it in great detail. But I know that he was satisfied with it. He was, was happy he, with it. Was he dazzling in conversation while he was sitting? Oh, he's dazzling in conversation. You know, one of the things I do regret is that I'm not very computer savvy. I couldn't care less about it normally, but I wish that I'd always kept his emails. Because we used to send a lot of emails to each other and, um, and Bob's emails were just so beautifully written and so funny. And his descriptions are so, were so vibrant of just everyday things. 
you know, it's a shame. It's a shame I didn't keep Who's got your computer? Yeah. <laughs> Someone could... So yeah, well, that was about five computers ago. Oh. <laughs> so no, another question in the room? <laughs> well, I didn't say corrupt, I just said um, equally insufferable. Insufferable, I find a very odd, I have to say, Tyrannical governments that exist in some parts of the world. Oh well, I'm talking about the extra Australian experience. Oh, right, Australia. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. There are some. There are some governments <laughs> where if you if you did the sort of drawings that I'd do, you'd, you they'd take you out and shoot you. Would not be here five minutes later. Mercifully, they're not allowed to do that to me. So that clarifies that. But I want to know what your reaction to the very powerful realistic sculptures are. I think they're really great fun. Um, you know, um, if I may say this, one thing that I really liked about seeing that exhibition was that nowhere did I see explanatory notes stuck to the wall. And I'm, that's a personal bugbear of mine. The artist's statement. <laughs> Call me old-fashioned, but I have a, a, a great fondness. Uh, I, I look back very fondly on the time when the artist's statement was the bloody picture. <laughs> you know, you don't look at Picasso's Guernica and go, well, what's this thing all about? I better read the artist's statement. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No. You don't look at Michelangelo, you don't look at Rembrandt and think, oh, I better read the artist's statement because I'm, I'm inadequately prepared for this. And I do think that that's the problem. I get so sick of people not having the time to actually, um, uh, what's that, interact with a work of art. People can't be bothered interacting with a work of art because they haven't understood that there is such a thing as a visual language specific to painting and drawing, you know? And if the bloody thing isn't moving and it doesn't have a soundtrack, people go, oh, shit, I better read about it. And, and you know, it's a, it's a very interesting point, I think. I hate artists, I'm so thrilled to hear that. But uh, what, uh, you know, these um, 13... I think they're wonderful. They're wonderful. Mm. They are, uh, when we asked the artist who came from China, mm. uh, you know, were they, was Karl Marx the person who looked a bit like Karl Marx, etc.? Is that, is, that, is, that, is that Ringo Starr or is it Yasser Arafat? <laughs> 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 he would not, uh, he would not um, add in to that. Uh, he wants them to be uh, up to you. Yeah. He wants the situation to be up to you. I'm pleased you like them. Well, I think that's also, I, I really like his attitude. Yeah. And it's interesting that you should say Chinese art too, because um, I think, I, I am a traditionalist, and I believe in, I, I do believe that um, culture is a product, a byproduct of civilization. And the, the, the ultimate expression of a, a society or a, or a, or a civilization's 
highest ideals is the culture that that civilization produces. That's why I, I still bridle at things like surf culture, pop culture. Um, I mean, there's crack culture now. You can get into crack culture, you can get into any kind of culture you like. And I think, yeah, you probably don't have to do a lot of study. And, um, and, I, and I just find it that that's one of those words, it's like genius, gets thrown around left, right and centre. Shane warns of genius because he goes like that. And, um, and so, you know, we use words like culture and genius just too flippantly and, and I find that kind of offensive. Anyway, to get back, sorry, I'm terribly easily sidetracked by myself. But I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with Chinese culture at the moment. Um, yeah, I, just find, I just find China just such an amazing place. And I've only, it was only three years ago that I went there for the first time and just blew my mind completely. And when I look at a lot of contemporary Chinese art, it always, not all of it, because I've been to big exhibitions of Chinese art and been confronted by artists' statements that would make your blood run cold, you know. Um, this is what you should think when you're looking at my picture. Bugger off. I'm going to think for myself. What do you think of that? And, um, but, you know, um, I love the, the sense of, of culture and tradition that... that makes it possible to produce a work in 2012 like that out there and it couldn't have happened without the few thousand years that preceded it. It's like every time I look at Picasso, every time, I see Goya and I see Velasquez and I see El Greco and I see all the great Spanish painters. You can see one brushstroke by Picasso and it's all there. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to reading visual art. It's like, it's, if, you, if you want enjoyment from it, you've got to learn how to look at it. You don't read the artist statements, otherwise you might as well be an illustrator. There are a few artist statements in here, but they're not the kind of artist statements that he's talking about. Bill, <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for thank being you, as outspoken this afternoon as I was hoping oh, you would be. Please was I outspoken? Thank you, Bill Thank you very much.